Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 105 with John O'Nicholas from reachout.com. He's at J-O-N-O-N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S on Twitter. I know last week I said it was episode 105. It wasn't. Last week was episode 104, but I was jet lagged. I couldn't get it together by calling it the right episode. So anyway, here's episode 105. Lucky for you, I'm jet lagged again. Because I'm in uh, in Venice Beach right now, uh, so greetings from Venice Beach. Um, uh, the, the, the swells up today, so it's nice. I can hear the ocean out, out my window, which is nice. Uh, please, if you're new, subscribe to the show. You can do so in the favorite podcast app that you like to use on whatever operating system you like to use it. You can also find me um, in SoundCloud, and uh, you can uh, actually I'm less on SoundCloud these days. But yeah, OsherGinsberg.com is where you can go to uh, to get on the show. You'll also get me on Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else, Facebook, I'm there. I've just had an incredible two weeks in Amsterdam at think, thnk.org, if you're interested. Met some wonderful people. We brought in some top-shelf forum guests. It was, it was rather excellent. I am a forum curator there, which is kind of like a moderated TED Talk, if anything. Um, I did attend the school. And then I managed to convince them to hire me. But my job there is to bring in interesting thought leaders from around the world uh, to share their knowledge with the next generation of social entrepreneurs. It's a, it's a great job. I love to do it. I do love being in Amsterdam. It truly is my home away from home. The people, the food, the culture, the infrastructure, 40,000 kilometers of bike paths, um, the canals, the everything. It's it's a magical fairy tale world of Carillions, coffee, cute guys and girls and bikes everywhere you turn everyone speaks four languages it's a very 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 special place um it's a glorious place i recommend highly that you you make your way to amsterdam 
And yes, there's other parts of it that may people may want to go for, but you get there and you can make a choice. You can go to those parts and do those things of Amsterdam, but then you're just going to be hanging out with a bunch of, you know, roaming British Bucks Party guys. Or you could go to the Rijksmuseum and, you know, enjoy over a million pieces of Dutch art um, or jump on a canal boat and go and have a look at the 15th century infrastructure that still stands. Make a choice. It's up to you. This episode is brought to you today by The Iconic, which is Australia's leading online clothing store. You already use The Iconic, so do I. So please support the people that support my show by using the offer code uh, on the website. Let them know that the ads that I'm doing right now are working for them. Spring is coming. It's here. Uh, And you know what's The pockets in last season's shorts are just not big enough to fit this season's iPhone. You know, if that's not a white guy problem, I don't know what is. Or perhaps you're meeting your... Or perhaps you've just met a new guy or a new girl and they're taking you out on a special date. Perhaps it's in a helicopter if you're dating a bachelor producer. Um, <laughs> maybe you're, you're looking for something new to show off all that work that you've been doing over winter in the gym. Either way, the Iconic stock over 700 top brands with 50,000 products on in their inventory. They offer three incredible well, the Iconic stock over 700 top brands with over 50,000 products in their store. They offer an incredible three-hour delivery if you live in Sydney. Same-day shipping in Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and Sydney. Overnight delivery to New Zealand. Free returns for 100 days. You shop at the Iconic anyway. If you want to support this show, go to theiconic.com.au slash osher, O-S-H-E-R, Enter the offer code you see there at checkout. Get a 10% discount off full price styles with any purchase over 99 bucks. Saves you money, doesn't cost you anything more. And the Iconic sling a couple of bucks back to us for everything that you buy. Uh, as you look in your wardrobe and you see the grim and unfamiliar colors of last summer's clothes, you can get amongst some new threads at theiconic.com.au. Shop from your phone or your laptop. Shop right now while you're listening. Please support the people that support this show the latest spring styles at your fingertips, theiconic.com.au slash osher. Enter the offer code at checkout. The offer code that's there, it's on the left, it's down about halfway. There it is. Yeah, don't tell anyone, it's just between us. Uh, enter that offer code for a 10% off full price styles with any purchase over 99 bucks. So, I was in Amsterdam and um, I'm training for this bicycle ride, which I can't quite talk about yet, but it's a biggie. So I brought my road bicycle with me. Um, but then I'm working every day from early until late. But when you're training for a very, 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 very long ride, you need to get kind of two or three hours riding in on most days. So I, I, I got an indoor trainer, which is basically like a, like a roller that you put on the, 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 so you strap the bike to it, you put the back wheel on the roller and as you pedal, the roller rolls and it has a resistance on it with a flywheel, so you can get the feeling that you're on the road. It's it's not exactly the same thing. It feels like you're pedaling on the road, except you're indoors and you sweat heaps and it's noisy. So I popped it on some towels to try and dampen the vibration from a downstairs neighbor. I've got to keep that good Airbnb rating, you know. Um, first up, I went onto the laptop and I was watching Narcos on Netflix, which is amazing if you're not watching it. And then I discovered this thing called Zwift, which these people don't pay me, but I just want to tell you that... Um, I don't play a lot of video games for reasons discussed on this show before. In that, if I start playing a video game, I am unable to stop playing a video game. So I just don't have them in my life anymore. Uh, but this is a live, um, massive multiplayer online game that uses the metric output that 
uh, from the, the sensors on my bike already put out. So like the heart rate strap that I wear, um, I've got a cadence sensor on my bike, which shows how fast I'm pedaling. So it takes that information, how fast I'm going and how hard I'm working and puts it onto my avatar on the screen. And there I am, I'm pedaling in a virtual world alongside other people from all over the real world who are on a trainer just like me, sweating bullets, annoying their neighbors with the noise of these trainers. It was really interesting. It's, um, it's not quite like the real thing. It's not going like going out and hunting windmills, but it works when I need to get some hours in my legs. But it's really interesting that all over the world, I'm doing this thing that other people are doing at the same time, which is, uh, you know, community, man. It makes us feel good. Zwift, it's like Swift with a Z. Um, it's nothing like the real thing, but it's good when I need to get some uh, hours in my legs. I did get a few, a few rides in which was nice, um, around the dikes and the dams and the fields and the windmills and the cows. and the. It's funny, when I looked at the GPS readout, most of my ride was at six metres below sea level, which is <laughs> pretty awesome. Um, when you do go to the Netherlands, take your bicycle. It, it's an incredible, incredible country. So let me tell you about my guest this week. John Nicholas is the CEO of reachout.com, which was the first online mental health service in the world. John has been working there since 1998, and as you'll hear, that was a time when you had to dial a phone number to get access to the internet. Yes, it was a long time ago. This week, ReachOut is launching a very, very big campaign, There's Life After Year 12, which I'm sure is an internationally common issue, young adults feeling immense pressure to perform, and that if their exams don't walk out, don't work out that their lives would be worthless. I'm here to tell you that's a load of rubbish. I'm living proof. Um, when I was in grade 12, due to the fact that, oh, you know, I'd rather have just played my guitar and hung out with my girlfriend than study, I did terribly in year 12 exams. I was so stressed out. I, I got finally to the big exam hall and I realized, oh, shit, I don't know any of the answers on this test. I remember watching the algebra on the paper just kind of swim around like I was John Nash from A Beautiful Mind, but not in a meaningful way. Um, and, you know, that girlfriend I just mentioned, well, I'd lost my virginity to her about six weeks beforehand, and she was late for her period. I was very stressed out. In fact, I had a stress headache so bad, I'm not lying, that my eyes went out of focus. My headache was so intense. It pushed. I had to cover my right eye with my left hand while I wrote so that I could see because I couldn't see properly. So anyway, I flunked out of high school. But guess what? It worked out. In fact, I now work, as I mentioned, at a world-class higher education institution um, that accepted me gratefully because, yeah, look, I'm telling you, turns out year 12 exams aren't the end of everything. There is life after year 12. I'm not going to say don't try. By all means, try as hard as you can. Do not do what I did because it did lead to some self, did lead to some massive self-esteem issues for a couple of years there. But do understand that if you don't get the marks that you are after, it's not the end of everything. I wish someone had told me this when I was 17. If you don't get the marks that you're after, it's not the end of everything. There are so many other other options. Now, I do have to give a very big trigger warning here. Jono and I talk about suicide in this show. Now, I would never in any way glorify nor normalize suicide. However, to talk about suicide and how to prevent suicide, we have to discuss some of the things that can go on with people struggling with a lot of pain. Now, please, 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 if you're feeling at all more sad than you think it is okay to feel, if you haven't been able to feel happy for a long time, despite other people feeling happy, 
around you, please, please, please go see a doctor. Just talk to someone. Let them know that you're not okay. Let them know that you're not okay. In order to combat suicide, which is the number one killer of, of men under the age of 25 in Australia, we need to talk about suicide. And I promise you that the fear you have about what might happen if you tell someone that you're not doing very well is probably nothing at all to do with what will actually happen when you tell someone that you're not doing very well. In fact, you'll hear me in this conversation talk about having a chat with my girlfriend. I, I was super scared to tell her where I was. But you know what? Uh, you know what she did? She, she hugged me and told me it was going to be okay. I, I was convinced that, oh, shit, if I, tell, if I tell her what's going on in my brain, she's going to go, uh, do you want to just pack up your stuff and go? I was convinced that was going to happen. But I sacked up, I told her anyway, and she gave me a hug and told me it was going to be all right. Um, that's my experience. Um, I've heard that experience shared by many other people. So I could just encourage you that if you're not feeling 100%, perhaps go to reachout.com, talk to your doctor, talk to someone. But it's important that we, ha we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. So come with me to the inner west of Sydney, Australia, a very, very urban inner west, for a conversation with a wonderful man. He's an internet pioneer. He's a CEO, he's a psychologist, he's a suicide counsellor, he's a runner, he's a father. He's, he's an all-around, pretty much top kind of guy. This is John O'Nicholas. Anyway, so I'm rolling, so... All right. Yeah, here we are. How here are we you? Are. How are you, John? I'm good, I'm good. Where are we? We are in the sunny view of Camperdown. Overlooking Parramatta Road, what a special site that is. Where <laughs> this is the inner, inner west of Sydney? The inner inner west. The this inner is, inner west. Yeah. And what is this building? Where, where... So this is the uh, what they call the Brain and Mind Research Institute at University of Sydney, where they do a lot of uh, research into brain sciences, anything from mental health disorders to Alzheimer's to mm -hmm. a, a whole variety of things. So lots of very smart people with lots of very expensive equipment <laughs> lots of machines that go big exactly yeah i saw that we're on the neurology floor so all the big eegs will be in here yeah this is this is where it's all all going on so reach out we've had a great partnership with the university of sydney doing our research we lease some space down here and uh yeah we roll them i hear you're moving house soon we are we to, are to my place we're we we're getting out of here we have to spread our wings and you know be vaguely independent right so uh yeah we're looking forward to it yeah. just near the fish markets yeah it's great there's fish markets right across the road there's uh, uh the tram stop downstairs you can ride your bicycle through there from pretty much anywhere west of the anzac bridge mm. and sandra sully's there what what more could the world provide it's gonna be great yeah so what what goes on what goes on at reach out for folks some folks listen overseas and i'll do a bit of an intro but yep. how, how do you see what reach out does in the community so reach out's an online mental health service for young people uh, and what that means is uh, any time of the day or night a young person's likely to to put something into google uh, anything from i want to kill myself to i feel depressed to i think my girlfriend hates me uh, and they'll arrive at Reach Out, which has an amazing array of content around 300 fact sheets, stories from other young people, a really beautiful community of young people supporting each other. Um, and then for those that want uh, more help and advice, uh, there's lots of referrals to other great organisations that are out there to support them. And how... Do you, do you work with Google to get make sure you're the top search result back? Um, 
We Google provide us with actually a very generous grant to help us on um, on our advertising. So how how we come up against particular search terms, and then like all online businesses, we actually work really hard to to make sure that our our content's really well referenced. Yeah. Being Reach Out was the first online mental health service in the world. We started in you know in 1998. We launched. I was saying to my kids, my oldest is now seven, that we started when you had to turn the internet on, and the internet <laughs> made a sound. It did! You know. <laughs> and it wasn't a quiet, gentle sound. No. It was, it was the digital equivalent of scraping fingernails on a chalkboard. His response to me is always like, why would anyone turn the internet off? So, you know, so that was when we started, 12.5K dial-up modems, and it was just a really amazing insight that the internet would change everything and that just as we could use it to do lots of great commercial things, that we should also look to how it could improve. You were around at the inception of Reach Yeah. Out? You were yeah. around before you pushed Go? Yeah, I, was, I started a year before we pressed, pressed Go. It was, uh, and what was, it, what was it like there? I mean, because not only am I interested in the fact that someone thought it was a good idea that this information should be online yeah. and this internet thing can be a great resource for young people, but also creating a digital business where no digital businesses has been created. That's also quite fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, and a digital charity that, which I think given we survived the dot-com bubble, maybe all of the organisations were really charities, they just didn't know it, that that, that time, but that time was was pretty amazing actually. I think the, the sense of excitement around the internet, the sense of possibility um, and, and the community around that, what made reach out really amazing was was our ability to take the best of what mental health services had previously been providing and look at what the technology could do mm. and put those things together when we had no framework by definition um, as to how this would work yeah um, so we had you know we had obviously some really brave supporters and investors uh, some great people like Daniel Petrie who was running Microsoft at the time and uh, who really understood the power of where this thing could go and, and put their own philanthropic money into it. Um, we had some really smart people that we were working with. Um, but the, the most important thing was we listened to young people and we said, look, you know, the, the driving force there was whatever they saw as a tough time, we would have content on it. And I think it was that really clear insight at the beginning to say we will work with young people, we'll be really responsive to what they need, which is... Uh, really special and and in and in itself that was probably the most controversial thing about reach out in, uh, mental health services are often dominated by the thinking of professionals really smart people uh, so this idea that you would have people with mental health difficulties and young people at that um, who would tell you what to do was was really amazing and you know, we were backed by triple j real appeal in 1997 so we had a great kind of group of young australians who really put their own money into getting this thing off the ground the um you talk about telling your son that it was a time when you had to turn the internet on. Mm. To try and imagine a time where, in the middle of the night, having a crisis moment, that you were truly alone. Mm. Maybe you've got a telephone. Mm. Maybe there's a 24-hour helpline that you might be able to call, but if you're really sick, you might even be too afraid to pick up that phone. To try to imagine that time is, you know, it's... It's almost impossible for, for I'm trying to imagine, like the 11 year old I live with now to try and tell her there was a time when you actually had to ask and wait till you met the person that knew the answer to know the answer. You yeah. can't just reach into your pocket and find it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That I think that the amazing thing with the internet now is, and 
And very quickly, even in that time, was this idea that I could take control of my own mental health without having to acknowledge to another soul whatever I'm going through. Uh, and that's, to your point, that's even one of the restrictions on the telephone helplines. I started my career as a telephone counsellor. And you still had to be brave enough to pick up the phone and you still had to give voice to your internal experience before anyone could help you. One of the amazing things about Reach Out is we removed that barrier and we said, look, we'll just have content um, on whatever you're going through. I think the, the insight that um, it's not about the illness, it's about your experience, that if you're stressed about exams, if you're stressed about your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's no less an experience than if you're having a psychotic disorder. Um, and that real sense that we were taking mental health out of the clinical environment and back to, to where people could just search was, and continues to be a really amazing thing. I still feel that vocalising thing. I, I, last night, I had a really tough day yesterday. I, I have some interesting OCD spectrum, anxiety, depression, action going on. And um, I got triggered really bad yesterday. It was, yeah. it was a very tough day for me. And so the intrusive thoughts were quite intense. And at the end of the night, my girlfriend's like, so what's going on? I'm like, I'm really afraid to tell you. She said, it's okay. And then I really had to sack up and and tell her exactly what was going on in my head. I was terrified yeah. that if I told her, it was like, well, that's it, I'm out of here, crazy pants. She gave me a hug and yeah. said, it's going to be okay. And, you know, just hearing you say that, just vocalising that, that was the most scared I've been telling someone else that I'm not paying 300 bucks an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most scared I've been. As much get of it. So, could we could we rewind a bit and find? Absolutely. You talked about how you were a phone counsellor. How was you, I was just in here in this room doing a piece of camera for your um, "There's Life After Year 12" campaign, which is brilliant. I wish someone had told me that stuff. Yeah. I wish someone had told me that what happened to me that um, you didn't study hard enough, so you didn't get into university. But that's okay because there's this. We live in this amazing country that, in between jobs, you can get money that can help you live. And then you can go and do a TAFE course and something you're already really good at. And boom, guess what? You're getting into business at QUT, which is like 700 TE points above whatever it was I got. And I'm, then I'm going to do a business degree. Um, you could never have told me that in high school. So it was very, I'm very grateful you gave me that opportunity. But what, what was high school like for you? High school was really interesting for me. Um, the, I went to a really big public high school in, in Newcastle. Um, my dad is a clinical psychologist and has has been in that um, in that community for 20 years. So, you know, my family, my dad was probably two degrees of separation from pretty much every other family at school. And the downside of that is he couldn't really get away with a lot. Someone would probably tell him somewhere in therapy what I did at a party, <laughs> um, and I'd never know who. Uh, but. Um, you know, it was actually a really amazing time in, in Newcastle in the late 80s because it was going through a really hard time. Um, BHP was closing down. The earthquake decimated the city. Um, so just, just quickly for people outside the country, it was this enormous steel foundry yes. uh, where they would take the iron ore, turn it into steel, then pop it on the dock and then ship it overseas. And that's, you know, a chunk of our country's economy was happening right there. Yeah. 
And, and that was the identity of Newcastle. It was working class. This is yeah. what we do. Star Hotel. You know, let's go. You, you know, you start as a. The dream was, you know, you're either a fitter and turner. You leave school at 14, or you're one of those white collar types whose dream was the boat and the and the Commodore. And um, and once BHP left, the 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 whole city lost its identity, and that really affected, I think, the school and and where we were at. So I had a great, I had a great life. Um, it was very much influenced by, by psychology and teaching. I lost a, a close friend of mine to suicide when I was 14. Uh, and that was, for me, one of the, the, the defining moments where I decided to do the work that I'm doing today when, I, when that happened. So for me, there, I, I still look back at that, those high school years, particularly that point when I was in year nine, as, um, as, as very much defining um, and leading me on a, a, a path where I know my purpose. How did this, well, late 80s, how did the school handle that? What happened? They didn't. Yeah. You know, that was the interesting thing. I remember when it, it, it happened and everyone was wandering around in shock, but we just all walked out of school, you know, and I remember calling my dad saying, look, seven of us have just left school. And, you know, the idea now, I think, that schools would just let, you know, half a year wander out uh, is was, was pretty amazing. Um, the... What I realised during that time was that that my particular talent was was being able to sit with pain. You know, if you think about what does a counsellor genuinely do, it's this it's this ability to sit with other people's pain and not try and fix it for them. You know, and sometimes that can be a really quick process. Sometimes that can be an incredibly slow process. And you've got to be able to listen. And you've got to be really able to engage. Um, and then you've got to be able to detach. So. For me, I really said, "Look, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually really good at this. I can, I can do this." And um, and I really um, took a great amount of satisfaction out of out of that. So from there, I was very clear that I wanted to do psychology at, at university. Did you talk to your dad around that time about what can I do to help my mates or anything like that? Yeah, and he's a great, you know, he's a he he he. My mum, but um, my dad in particular, was a great sorts of support and I knew and I knew what I was getting in for you know I think that was part of the mm. the benefit of of um, growing up in that world uh, but for me it was also I think I, I needed to leave I needed to leave Newcastle and go elsewhere for university but interestingly in the year 12 I didn't do very well in my year 12 exams I was so determined to do well I put so much pressure on myself that I didn't do very well and I just sort of scraped into the degree that I wanted and um, you know, if I actually had got a better mark, I would have gone to a different uni and I never would have met Jack who founded Reach Out. So I think to your point, it's actually the the journeys you have that you don't intend to that, that are offering the best ones. Yeah. What, what about the... Were you able to ease off on that stress that you put yourself under in high school when you got to university? Because I dropped out of university because it was too hard. Yeah. I, just, I couldn't deal with it. Yeah, I look, I, I think um, f for me... What I realised, one of my realisations at university was that education as opposed to learning is a game. And it's one of the things I often told young people who I work with who get really stressed during that period is that um, education has, has actually very little to do with how smart you are. It's actually how well you can play the particular game that they're asking you to play, whether it's how well you can write an essay or how well you can write, um, memorise medical facts that doesn't necessarily make you a great doctor or a great literary person, it just means you can play that particular game. So that was actually a really great realisation for me because once I worked out what the game was, you then just have to 
you, you go, okay, I have to try and understand how do I write an essay to get the mark. And most of that is, you know, insert sentence here, insert fact here, pop out the end with a thing. So um, that was actually a really good relaxing realisation was it wasn't actually about how smart I was, it was how well you played the game. Oh, man, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> I was through my whole life thinking I wasn't smart because university was too hard. And then I recently I went to do this course in Amsterdam at this uh, C school in Amsterdam. I now work there. And I'm at a whiteboard going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a bloke who's got a master's in, in business systems analysis. I'm like, I, I thought I was dumb. I, thought it was, <laughs> I, just, I just didn't know how to do the things that they measured me by smart. Absolutely. Basically. Absolutely. And I think that's a, you know, for me, I, I look at that with, with my own boys. I've got three boys under, under seven and it's, you know, it was the conversation I was having with my seven-year-old the other day, which is, you know, school is about, it is about understanding what they need from you, but also a, a process of in and around that, you have to decide what, you, what gets you out of bed in the morning, what you love. If those two things coincide, you're probably going to have a pretty cruisy time at school. If those two things don't coincide, then you know how do you manage the things you have to do while doing what you love outside it? Um, and I think that's you know if I look at the stress that a lot of young people put themselves under, but also the stress people put themselves in business is they take way too much of their identity from stuff they don't particularly enjoy. Yeah, I was just talking about this. I just did a, a chat with James Matheson, who I, I used to work with, and. We were exactly talking about that exact thing, how we got blessed to do a job that we is about the thing we love, which mm. was music when we worked at Channel V. And we were just discussing how do you how do you work forty hours a week at something you hate because you've got three kids and a mortgage. Yeah. You know, as an adult, it's just as you know, it still it doesn't go away. Yeah. <laughs> you still gotta figure that out. Absolutely. And I think the the big part for me is where do you draw your sense of identity? You know, and one of the things is that there was a pretty long period of time where for most people the purpose of work was to earn money to do the thing that you loved on the weekend, whether that be go boating, whether that, you know, be spend time with your family. I think now there's this idea that, that work has to have an innate purpose. If you're someone like me who works in a great charity and doing the thing I love, then it does. But... Um, if you're not, then my view is how do you condense the work you need to do to earn the money you need to so you can do what you truly love outside it. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I meet lots of really smart people who've kind of lost that. They got a little bit too trapped in the idea that work should have meaning. And yeah, you can't take stuff with you when you die. No. You might be able to have a very big boat. You might be. My, so my girlfriend's dad just, he just, he just bought a boat. He bought a boat off a bloke who hasn't driven his boat in 10 years. He gets the guy around to fix it and defoul it and stuff, but he hasn't driven the boat in 10 years because he's old and he can't get on and out, in and out of it. Yeah. It's a big, expensive boat. You, yeah, it's, it's... We did kind of get sold... It wasn't exactly the truth, was it? No, no, we kind of got sold a pup there. Yeah. And, I, look, that's my hope about the, this generation coming, coming through now is that... that you know, for most people living in Australia, we've actually got we've got enough stuff to have a great life. It's amazing, you yeah. know. The abundance is incredible. And then everything over and above that is really about how you want to live your life. But but I think, you know, I just look at young people now, and and 
how much of their money is actually being spent on experiences. I look at the amazing young staff that we've got at Reach Out and how much of them, they, they concentrate on going overseas on holidays and rather than buying a big house, you know, they choose, you know, they choose from a young age like I did to work for a charity and not once sort of worry about whether or not they're going to have an investment banker's house in Mossman. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's, that's really part of it, you know, how do you, how do you have great experiences in life and most of the time they don't, they don't require huge amounts of money. I would, I would agree. I would absolutely agree. I have had Naomi Simpson on the show. She does Red Balloon. And that's her, she said she came back to Australia once when she was living in New York. She came back and she saw all these self-storage places by the airport. And she goes, look at us. We're buying so much stuff. We're paying for somewhere to put our stuff, stuff we don't even use every day. Yeah. We just have to keep this stuff. There's enough stuff. We don't yeah. need any more stuff. Yeah. We need to do things yeah. with each other. Yeah. That's what actually makes us happy. It's nuts. Uh, so back to university for a second. You also... You, you studied psychology, yeah. but you also uh, you did a master's in public health. Yeah. What, what exactly um, is that? Is that how to work with public health systems or how to create public health policy? Yeah, the, I had a great career trajectory. You know, I, I studied psychology at university, then I, I specialised in suicide prevention and trauma. You know, so for those in... There's really a range of ways in which you can do counselling, but my specialty was... was people who were just in really bad situations. Um, and um, out of that, I met an amazing guy called Chris Sidoti, who used to be our human rights commissioner. And he asked me to uh, work with him uh, on human rights contracts across Indonesia. And we went to 14 regions of Indonesia, working with communities around how they could improve the human rights of children. And we did a piece of work for UNICEF Cambodia to improve the lives of women and children there. And that is... That, for me, um, I think, awakened to a more specific purpose, which we really fulfil at Reach Out, which is how do you do psychology at scale? One of the limitations of counselling is it's basically two people sitting in a room having a chat. And for that one hour, that, that great brain of the psychologist can't be utilised by anyone else. So what public health does, and, and the reason why I went on to study a master's there is... How do you take interventions and put them at scale? Most people know this, for example, in um, immunisation. Immunisation is just simply health inoculation at scale. Um, we think about this in terms of a whole range of things. Clean water you know, is, a, is, a, is a great public health intervention. Um, it's actually not been very well applied to psychology. So what I wanted to do was understand all the theory of, of um, public health. How has it been applied to other health issues, whether it be heart disease or... Um, or clean water or, or other things, and then say, how does that apply to reach out? Because that's, that's fundamentally what we do at reach out. We say, look, you know, at any given time, we would have thousands, if not tens of thousands of people accessing reach out. How do we build systems that can simultaneously help, you know, tens, tens of thousands, if not more? Um, you know, my, my vision is that actually the best solution to mental health in, in developing countries um, if you think of a country like Indonesia with 180, 200 million people, it's not going to be by rolling out GP health centres. It's going to be something like using the mobile phones, using the internet to give people the tools to look after their own mental health. And that's really what we've been pioneering at Reach Out. And so that, that, that public health, that Masters of Public Health was you, I guess, envisioning that and, and seeing how, how those interventions can work 
at scale and work with kind of in the government system. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. How do you change? How do you change health issues at scale? Yeah. Uh, and you, you, what you do is is by changing the environment around which people um, navigate the world. Mm. Um, you know, and and that that's actually a really great idea when it comes to to psychology because really what the psychologist does is is really help people make sense of their internal experience. Um, and talking to someone is is one way of doing that. But what we've you know what we've done at Reach Out is put some of those things that a psychologist would do, put them on a self help tool on a mobile phone, or put them in content that people can understand. And actually, if you can help if, if you can help them understand those things, they're, they're a, a long way down to getting well. What I really hope for you is that as you and I are sitting here and you and we're trying to tell people listening, yeah, we had to turn the internet on, and it was a twelve point five kbs that's the speed of the modem and that but in what is it 15 16 years since you yeah. started yeah. nearly 20 years then another 20 years you'll be like yeah it was an iphone 6 exactly and it had only 128 gig and you had to touch it yeah <laughs> like, wouldn't that be amazing well i think and that's the, that's my view of the next the next amazing thing in psychology is in and we started experimenting with this that you can actually take some of your external um, neurochemical experiences and and make them real. We've done a thing called Reach Out Breathe that people can download from the, the Apple App Store. And what it does is use the heart rate monitor on the back of the new iPhone and, and then take you through a managed breathing exercise. And for anyone who's suffered from panic attacks, then what you'll often get recommended is to breathe slowly. But if you're in the middle of a panic attack, what's the one thing you can't do? Right, is breathe slowly, but you can concentrate on external advice. So this idea that the phone itself becomes the therapeutic tool is really amazing. Yeah. You know, I think you know over time they'll they'll put things you know like heart rate monitors and other things in t-shirts, and so people will realise they're. Bo- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Body will tell them when they're having a panic attack well before their brain tells them. And this will give them, you know, a great opportunity to manage their own, own behaviour. So I, I think the next 10 years for, for this space are actually going to be transforming. I think they'll be phenomenal. And the idea, as you, as you were just talking about, and certainly as 3G and touchscreen handset prices plummet, I think you can get one for 64 bucks or 60 bucks and open, runs on the Opera software. Yeah. It's probably even cheaper now. Um, that you can put that device in the hand of someone in a developing nation and and on it there is information that they can can use yeah. is it's brilliant yeah and it will be and it will be personalized yeah really. that's bespoke yeah, it's amazing that, isn't it and that's that that what we've seen is the 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 ability of people to create really compelling content mm. you know when we first started reach out it was really hard to and quite expensive to create you know, audio content or video content, um, and it certainly was really hard to store it. The idea that you know, we can put that power in the hands of people and get them to create their own experiences and share those own experiences is great. The, you know, the distribution power 
um, that comes with social media, mm. I think is probably the biggest destigmatizing thing around mental health. Yeah. You know, today's we're at Purple Day. Uh, I did my thesis on on the relationship between sexual orientation and suicide in young people, and the biggest challenge that I found when when interviewing young people was when you're a, a, a gay kid in high school, uh, am I the only one? Mm. And before the internet, who, how are you going to check that? You really did feel But like now you can jump online and there's communities of people who can support you. Mm. There's a whole campaign through social media where literally hundreds of thousands of people today are, are wearing a purple to show strangers that they care and that they're tolerant. And, and the idea and the power of that for someone who's mm. feeling alone right now who might be wondering should they come out for the very first time itself, I think, is an, a, is an amazing transforming effect that just couldn't happen before the internet. You mentioned that you specialised in suicide prevention mm. and by the sounds of things, you were, you were the guy that they called as the last mm. hope. How do you... You said you're, you're very good at sitting with pain. Mm. How do you even begin to have the conversation with someone who is like that far away from, like might even not believe a word you're saying? Yeah. Because it was like, how would you know, Jono? You have no idea how good it's going to be once I do this because all this pain's going to go away. Mm. How do you even begin to have that conversation with someone? The, the starting point for me was, was an absolute unwavering belief that the world can always get better. Um, and and the, the, the key driver of suicide is not death, but to your point, you want the pain to go away. And my opening, you know, my conversation with all the young people I worked with, um, and I don't get to do it so much anymore because it's, it's just not my job, but, it, but if I can help you find a different way for that pain to disappear, will you come along the journey with me? Um, and often the, the answer was no. You know, and then it was, you know, what if I show you that I'm more determined to be right than you are? And, you know, a, a lot of times that was actually enough, you know, that, ha that for a person who doesn't believe in themselves, who, who is at that point where they're not even sure that their own brain's working well, can they at least focus on my confidence? Um, and then, and if... My view was if I had unwavering belief, then that would be enough to kind of drag them that one centimetre further along the way. Um, and, you know, it was like, let's get till tomorrow morning and then let's just get to tomorrow afternoon and then let's get the next day and let's get the next day. And yeah, really, it's just a couple of hours at a time at first. A couple of hours yeah, at a time. Yeah, it's not the rest of your life. No. Yeah. No. And the, the alternative, I said to them, look, you know, the, the, the option... And you end up having very odd conversations with suicidal people because one of the things that someone who hasn't been suicidal doesn't realise is that when you're in the midst of that thought, that is the most dominant thought. It's like, you know, the, the, it's like, what am I going to do at the shops today? You know, and, and so for them, all you're doing is tapping into the dominant conversation in their head. So it, it's actually a very calm conversation. You have to, you have to accept that a lot of the anxiety is not that person's, it's actually yours. Um, and you have that conversation and, and the, my answer was, death is always an option for later on. You're never ruling that option out, right? But I just, you know, just give me 
an hour or two hours or 24 hours or let's and let's have a let's have a go. I do. I do some work with Movember Radio. I created like Movember Radio. It's a great. It's a great it's show. A great, yeah. um, and um, so each each week we have a, a conversation. And I, and I do know that it's 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 very very tricky to talk about suicide mm. in any context because normalising it or populating it in someone's thought process is in itself a dangerous thing. Mm. How do we get around the conversation you and I just had? Like, how do we... What do we, what do we say about that conversation, that, you know, what we just spoke about? We just discussed things that probably people may, may not have considered, mm. particularly the pain aspect. I think the, the big part for me is we should always have conversations that end in hope. Mm-hmm. And in that, that you can actually have conversations about suicide. You can ask and talk to people who, are, who you worry about being suicidal. What you want to do is end it with, uh, yeah, but how do we improve? How, how do we have conversations of hope? And that's uh, th- that's probably the really important part. I think a lot of what we have done in mental health is what I would call emotional voyeurism. It's genuinely not. It's genuinely not about trying to help people. It's just trying to look at the the, the train wreck of, of of their life as as we see it. Hmm. Um, and I think that's why people love tabloids. I think it's actually about the emotional voyeurism of just seeing someone else's life unravel um, and finding that endlessly fascinating. So the, the thing for me about having conversations of suicide is, is separating out the emotional voyeurism to, to really get to the conversation of, of hope and hopefulness mm. and understand where people want to go. And then for me, it's an incredibly healthy, powerful conversation. I did a, a talk, interestingly, on, on mental health at my son's school with seven-year-olds, and it was about... Um, and, and I opened up... Um, I was talking about the work that we did at Reach Out, and I said, you know, the reason I got into this is a, is a good friend of mine died. Um, and you could feel the anxiety rise of the, of the teachers going, what have we done inviting this person into a... And I said, so what would be some of the reasons that you, you know, you guys as would feel really sad? Because my job is to help people who are sad feel less sad. And the insights from seven-year-olds were just beautiful. And and I was talking to the teacher afterwards, uh, who said that was a really amazing journey. I never thought that the seven-year-olds would understand mental health in such a way. And I was saying, of course they do. You know, they understand pain. They understand how to alleviate pain. They understand why pain needs to end we just needed to frame it in you know language that they would they would do and and you can have a very safe and healthy and very positive conversation um through that is it because i mean the thing that that boggles my mind is that we are here in this country this incredible country so much abundance so much safety so much security despite what we're told every day it is the safest most beautiful abundant country on this planet and yet eight people die every day because they're taking their own life five of which are men Mm. and it's the number one killer of of people under the age 18 18 to 25 yeah it what do you think when you having been at the coalface of it what do you think when you hear that statistic Uh, it it still terrifies me um you know i i the reason why I continue to do the work that I do, I started because of the, the personal mission from, from when I was 14. My, I, I've now, as I said, got three boys 
under seven. I got ten years until they hit that risk period, you know. And 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 as you said, men are much more likely to suicide than women. So with three boys, I am particularly conscious that that world needs to change in ten years, and it can change. Uh, and the sad and short answer is that we actually just, as a community, haven't prioritised and invested enough to get the job done. You know, if you look at at uh, any major achievement of humanity, what it requires is an is an absolute belief on behalf of the community that this situation is unacceptable, and. I don't actually think the Australian community is ready to say this is unacceptable. I think they say it's sad. I think they say it shouldn't happen. But they're not willing yet to say this is unacceptable. And I think one of the roles that we've got to play in, in, in our work in mental health is to, is to make sure that we can draw that line in the sand. Um, and, and once you do that, generally what history shows you is within 10 years the problem's addressed. Right. You know, whether that be putting a man on the moon, whether that be resolving polio, whether that be reducing cancer rates. Mm. Uh, you look at what we did in HIV AIDS, essentially the problem was solved within 10 years of people saying this mm. isn't going to happen. Drink driving, man. Drink driving, you know, that SARS. That was quick too. You know, Drink driving was quick. Absolutely. You know, look at what we did, you know, with SARS. Mm. Um, so as soon as you say this is unacceptable, then... The, the, the solutions are there. They've just really got to get to... The resources the just get scale. unlocked. Absolutely. Let's go, this is, well, we need to do this. Yeah. It's got to be done. Yeah. Um, we talked earlier about people not wanting to vocalise. Uh, I think it's something like one in four Australians that have a mental health issue. No, one in four Australians have a mental, mental health issue, but 80% of them don't mm. seek help. Um, and we talked about the fear of vocalising it. What, like, what if that number came down to 50? Would you, would you be happy? Like... Can you get that number down? You can absolutely get that yeah. number down. I think one of the things that we've been pointing out is that we've got an active, quite rightly, an active program around destigmatisation, making it okay for people to mm. get help. But the services aren't there at the end of it. Ah. You know, so one of the things that is incredibly powerful about Reach Out is that um, for every person accessing Reach Out, we're not taking that opportunity to access a Reach Out away from anyone else. Whereas that's true of a telephone counsellor, it's true of a psychologist, it's true of all other service providers. Yeah. So one of the things that we see as our role is that, that reach out and um, can and is the first line of defence. We can literally provide help 24 hours a day, seven days a week to everybody. Uh, and that, that intervention alone will help a huge number of people. And then after that, we can help people find the right resources for them. But um, again, we've got to find uh, we've got to find a way in which the system can be taken to scale. That the the amazing thing about in, the internet is that that is the distribution system for mental health. You know, the reason why um, something like immunisation works as a public health intervention is they found a distribution system that can be put to scale with identical results and done very very cheaply. Um, and any time you try and address a problem, you actually have to get to that point. Uh, and in mental health, we didn't have a model for doing that. We now do, and reach outs have 17 years of showing that that can work. Uh, we've just really got to take that to, to scale and, and deliver it. And then we've got to provide some of the right services that sit, that sit behind it. So why is it important to 
I mean, I was, I was talking about this yesterday with one of, one of my guests that um, we were talking about how depression and men can manifest in many different ways, being irritable, back pain, mm. you know, just things that you would never, you know, never consider would, would relate. Why is it important to address a mental health issue early? And, wh and why do they not just get better with time? Look, the, the honest truth is for some people, uh, depression does go away. Right. You know, a, a lot of people do recover um, and recover. What you don't want to do is leave that open to chance. You know, it's the same thing for me with, with a whole bunch of other illnesses. You know, we go to the doctor even though we could get well, but do we really want to spend six months sick with the flu when we could actually spend three weeks sick with the flu? You know, and that's my thing around mental health is the reason why you want to get help early is it's always easy to turn something around um, early and quickly. Mm. Um, and the more skills you have, the easier it is to address and the easier it is to manage yourself. One of the things that we are now realising about mental health, for example, is how important um, the, the neurochemical processes are that um, there is a particular type of depression uh, that we're now understanding that's related to a dysfunctional circadian rhythm, how you sleep and how you stay awake. And the intervention for that is not talking. The intervention is getting up roughly when the sun gets up, staying upright, um, seeing sunlight and doing some form of gentle exercise before 2pm. And what that does is essentially provide your body with the right sorts of, of nutrients to, to stay well. So we're now understanding that actually one of the reasons why employment could be a really good intervention is it actually forces you to get out of bed at roughly 7 o'clock in the morning, you get out, you get dressed, you eat, you have some general exercise, you go to the train stop or whatever it is. Um, and you also maintain a level of, of cognitive engagement by talking to other people and solving problems. Um, and, and I think this is the important part that we're now understanding in mental health, that the actual intervention therapy bit that we thought was really critical actually may be marginal to a lot of how people need to, to get and stay well. Um, and if we can just help people find the right skills for them, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Mm. But also, I think what will happen in mental health um, is we'll start to understand what is the individual trajectory for um, particular people's illnesses. Of a, a young person that I started working with over 12 years ago, she's just got a really awful form of bipolar. And, and the medication management, the complexity of that illness is just incredibly hard. She does so many wonderful things, but it's just a particularly awful form of, of that illness. Um, and so recognising that her trajectory of illness is very different, they say, from someone whose depression might be sudden but relatively short. Um, understanding the differences between those two illnesses and how we need to help and treat people, I think, is going to be a really important step. Yeah. Um, so what about people who... Obviously, reach out's not just for people who are having an issue. It might be for people who are worried about their friend. Mm. What are some things that, if like folks listening to this, if there's someone in their life that they're a bit worried about, what are some just kind of general signs that things may be amiss? Look, what you're after is change. I, I think we actually underestimate our gut instinct. Mm. That, and, and often when we don't ask, it's because we're afraid of the answer. Uh, and whenever I've said to, to someone, I've just noticed a change, um, things that you normally did or you enjoyed doing before you don't seem to now, the 
the answer is yes, then that always leads to a great conversation. Um, and that's fundamentally what kind of psychology is all about. You know, I, having grown up with it, I think there's way too much mystique. Um, but if you, if you have someone in your life who you love, who is engaging in the world in a different way than you think you should, then there's no harm saying something's a bit weird. Mm. Is there something going on that I'm not aware of? Uh, and the answer may initially be no. Um, but the worst thing, the worst case scenario out of that is that person's walking away going, oh, well, that person loves me enough to notice that I'm behaving differently. That's the worst case scenario, right? Someone in the world has noticed me enough to know that I'm behaving differently and they care enough to have asked. Um, and that's a, that in and of itself is a powerful intervention. Um, and maybe next time they go, well, you know, maybe I am behaving weirdly. Maybe I can talk. Mm. Um, so, you know, for me, keep asking, keep talking. I think one of the things that everyone can do is, is jump onto a site like Reach Out and get informed yourself, understand what is depression, you know, understand what is OCD, understand how people's um, brains react. There's, you know, there's some amazing TED Talks, for example, that from some of the smartest people in the world that just give you an insight into this issue. And, you know, even after 20 plus years in this space, I find it endlessly fascinating yeah. how, how this space is unfolding and how, how much there is to learn. It, it it's, it's it's not like some uh, medical procedures are like well like they're pretty much doing the same thing they did in the fifties yeah. or before you know it's like well it's pretty much what worked then and works now yeah. but now as we learn more and more particularly about neuroplasticity and things like this like the ability that we can actually rewire like even in the time that I've been in in treatment the the ways of treating me have changed yeah. so much which is what I, I grew up both my parents are doctors which is what I love about doctors doctors are like they will believe anything if there's evidence and even if the next day something comes along and says here's something opposite they go great I believe that now yeah, exactly they will change their minds and they will go with a new treatment and that's what I love about the way that my folks raised me mm. that I have that you mm. know someone asked me you know what what is your superpower? I think my superpower is that I, I can change my mind mm. and be okay with it. Absolutely. And I think that's a fucking brilliant thing. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think it's super important. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that for me, to, to your point, I, the reason why I love child psychology in particular um, is you know, how much kid brains change. You know, that, that um, you know, for someone who's entering puberty 11, 12, 13 their brain will fundamentally re-rewired over a three-year period. Okay, so I have a vested interest in what we're about to talk about. I'm living with an 11-year-old girl at the yeah. moment. And I've known her for a year now. She's about nine inches taller than when I met her. She's a very different kid. So, yeah, how, how does her brain change? Well, what, what happens with puberty is, is essentially the brain resets itself. So from naught to five, our brain grows and makes all these connections uh, and and develops all these amazing skills. And then through repetition, those pathways get deeper and deeper. Think about it as from 0 to 5, these amazing town planner called your brain is laying down all these roads that it thinks it's going to use and you drive, the more you drive cars on it, the more those roads are well used and the better people become at, at utilising them. Then the next five years, it's really just practising to see. And then uh, roughly around puberty, the town planner comes back and goes, do you know all those roads you haven't used very often? I'm just going to demolish them. 
right? And I'm going to rebuild those roads and the roads you've been using quite a lot, I'm going to deepen them and improve them and turn them into highways. And so what you see with teenagers, and this, this process goes from the back of the brain forwards, right? So, um, so what you see with teenagers is it's like being two again, right? The similarities between a two-year-old and a 12-year-old are phenomenal. It's just one physically runs away, the other emotionally runs away. You know, the, the rebellion, the, the dominance, all those things are really the brain just relearning again. Now, most of that will probably take about six or seven, seven years. We know most of it's kind of laid down between 18 and 24, but the joy of spending time with a teenager is, is watching them literally as a brain evolve into a new person. Um, and that is a, you know, for me, that's an incredibly exciting, powerful thing. Um, and not something to be afraid of. I think it's an, you know, an awesome time to spend with teenagers. Because I'm new and I'm distracting mum from her. <laughs> so I've only been there a year now, so I'm still not very popular yeah. with her. <laughs> so my biggest, you know, I'm, I'm reading all the books because yeah. my biggest thing is like, how do I not mess this up? How do I not end you up in therapy yeah. when you're 20? Yeah. <laughs> What's the best thing? What's the best thing I can do? Um, you... You came to the, tell me about how the foundation of Reach Out. You said you met uh, Jacket uh, at university. Yeah. At what point did you guys go? You know what? This looks all right. Let's make this happen. Yeah, he met my the the professor I was working with on on my research, um, and um, he was looking for some people to work with him, and um, and I met him. Uh, I could be fair to say I was not. Uh, I was I was not a, a young person blessed with a great degree of humility at 20, and he he asked me to volunteer and I very quickly said no I don't volunteer but you are able to pay me, and thankfully he didn't know any better and he started paying me pretty soon after that, um, so um, I, I must admit I was just really I was really wowed by the idea of 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 using the internet like I think, and I think one of the great things for me being being 20s and and looking back on that that part of my career was there was a whole bunch of us who were trying things and no one was there to tell us that we were doing the wrong thing. We had an amazing group of, of experts and professors who were making sure that we were aligned with mental health but at the same time there's just a brilliant sense of experimentation. Um, and for those who don't, who weren't around I think in the late 90s, the the sense of excitement around the internet was just amazing. You know, this this can do anything. It's you know, so I think we kind of got caught. I I, I definitely got caught up in in that, um, and in the possibilities of using the internet and the possibilities of doing everything for the first time. And how did you come to be CEO? Look, I, I say to our volunteers, you know, the one thing about being young is everyone will tell you to change jobs every three years and if you can be that one person who never changes jobs everyone will disappear and you'll eventually become CEO <laughs> it is just a, a, a statement of persistence <laughs> you know and um, and I think there's a really nice part of my story with reach out is is I did start off like the young people we we serve now who start as youth ambassadors and volunteers we have a great, you know, about 20% of our staff start as volunteers and then come to work as paid staff. We've got great um, people here who, who volunteered when they were 16 and who were still with us in their early 30s. Um, and that was, for me, my, you know, my, my journey of just continuing along with the program. Um, and 
I think one of the things that's kept me really excited about this space is that that the the future for reach out in terms of service delivery isn't defined. Um, that there's still more exciting things that we can discover um, than than we could ten years ago. So if someone's listening to this and they, you know, you mentioned. Uh, what what are some things that people can do if they're not having a particularly great day today? What do you what do you what do you say? Like, how do you open the batting if someone says I'm just having a, having a really terrible day? What are some things people can do just right now? Right now, I think the 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 first thing I would say is understand your internal experience. That that ask yourself the question on a scale of naught to 10, where 10 is the shittest I could possibly be and 10 is I'm so happy I'm the Dalai Lama, and think about the last two weeks and just close your eyes for two seconds and give yourself a number. And do that today, do that tomorrow, do that the day after. And what you notice about, um, about people is that number that they give themselves is actually remarkably consistent between people. You know, when I asked that question of, a, of young people I, was, I started working with, and they gave me a two, we were having lots of conversations around suicide. If they gave me a number of four or five, we were talking a little bit more about depression. If they were giving themselves a number, say, six or seven, then it was like, well, you know, my life's pretty good, but I probably do nothing to invest in it. I've become really endlessly fascinated by people who give themselves a score of eight, nine or ten. Um, and... and for me, the challenge is to live your life as an eight, nine, or ten, and that's something that everybody can do. If you if you're listening to this now and you're giving yourself a four, then that's only a four point bump. Hmm. You know that that you can live your life in extreme happiness with a four point bump, and you might be feeling quite depressed right now. Is just a, a powerful thing. But what you notice and about people who have a really high degree of well being is they are incredibly conscious of their well being. They're incredibly conscious of the drivers of their well-being, and they are incredibly diligent about prioritising those drivers in their life. So it's not accidental. They it work is, at it. These, it is not accidental, and they are very clear about it. And they will happily tell you. You know, I know for me that um, that part of my well-being is driven by um, a discipline of exercise. You know, I've got three young kids, and I I make sure that I run home from work. So I would run about 30 kilometres a month. Um, and, um, and the whole point of that is that that run home is 40 minutes of release. You know, it's, a, it's an allowing me to actually recalibrate with the world. The, the amazing thing about running is that you're continually solving small problems, like how not to get hit by a car or how not to trip over a road or whatever it is. So for me, I know that I have to prioritise that in my life. I have to work with my wife so that she can do her exercise that we both can spend time with our kids. Um, that I, I actively manage my work life so that I can spend time with my kids. Not only because it's good for their mental health, but it's because it's good for mine. And I think that's probably the big thing that I would say to everybody is, is what's your number? What are the drivers of your number? Set yourself a goal of living your life as an eight, nine, or ten. Because if you don't quite make it, the worst is you're going to be a seven, which is not a bad result. And then just actively prioritise those things in your life, and and you know the results are going to be pretty good in a pretty short period of time. So just checking in and giving that number, giving that number every day. When I think about what happened to me, I'll I'll, I'll go into it um, another for another show, but. 
basically everything kind of fell apart. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got very, very sick for a while. But it was about 150 days that were worse than the last mm. that I didn't notice that it was going that way. I'd never really noticed that each day I was sleeping less, each day I wasn't able to concentrate as well. You know, the hours were getting less and less that I could sleep. Things were annoying me more and more. I just didn't realise that it was a slow, slow decline because I hadn't been checking in. And mm. I just, you know, I think about now, if I had been giving myself that number, would things turn out differently? Mm. Um, because, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what happened. I just kind of, as, as you mentioned before, we don't, you know, we don't realise that we're in this situation until it's possibly too late, which was the case for me. Mm. Um, but, yeah... That number. I mean, shit, even if it's like, if you're giving yourself a four, what would it take to get a 4.5? Yeah. And go and do that. Mm. And guess what? Boom, you're at 4.5. Yeah. Guess what we're going to try and do tomorrow? 4.75. Yeah. It's a great conversation. It's a great conversation to have with someone else because everyone knows what their number is and, and, and it becomes a kind of when a shorthand way of telling people how you feel as well. As you said when you're going through a really tough time, actually converting that internal experience into words is just enormously hard. Mm. But you can say to someone, do you know what, I think I'm a three today. And that other person will know instantly what you're saying. So what do we need to do? Are we all right? Are we safe? You know, or I, I started as a five and I think I'm a two. Um, and it's, you know, it's a great conversation for people I, I do it with my kids and it's a great conversation to do with, say, with teenagers, particularly if, with te teenage boys who might struggle to verbalise their emotions and go, look, you know, just tell me what your number is. And, and you and I do a deal that if your number ever slips below six, you tell me um, and we'll, we'll work on it together. Yeah. But, but also that goal of saying, you know, what do we need to do to get to an eight? And that might take a while, but it gives you a really kind of solid light on the hill um, is it, it's just a very easy, powerful way to have a conversation about mental health without going into the complexity of, of the emotions. Oh, I almost want to cry having you tell me about it. It's just incredible. All right, so we've been going it for a while, so I'll ask you one, one more question. Um, what, what's your wish? What's your wish for our society and the way that we look not only at our own mental health but at the mental health of others? That the key driver... Is, is really around peacefulness. And uh, I think for me, peacefulness is a, is a much more powerful word than, than happiness um, in our society. And they essentially mean the same thing, where, where there's the, the peacefulness is this sense that, um, that I'm okay with the world and the world is okay with me, and, and that I'm able to achieve the things that I want to do without detracting from the needs of anyone else. Um, and I think once you kind of have that as a as a goal for you, and it's a it, it's a goal I think for kids as well, is that you will go through ups and downs in your life. But the ultimate thing is just to be at peace with where you're at. Um, and and most things kind of take care of them, care of things from there. The the challenge I think for our society at the moment is it doesn't have that sense of peace as a driving thing in many sense I think the world is getting more restless um, and I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm actually really hopeful about the next generation of young people that they are closer to realising that that restlessness is deeply unhealthy than the previous generation 
Um, I think the, the previous generations have sort of got close and then got somehow scared and then just decided to acquire stuff. You know, I think the next generation of realising very much that it's about the experiences you can have rather than the stuff you can have that, that will probably drive it. Mate, I can't thank you enough for this. Thank you. This it's been a great conversation. It's really good. Thank you so, so much. This has been really great. Um, I'm going to... Oh, yeah, so if people want to help out, if people like what they hear and if people want to contribute, what can they do? The first thing I would love everyone to do um, is just jump onto reachout.com. You know, check us out. Um, send us a note if, you, if you've got some ideas or you'd love to get involved. Um, ultimately, Reach Out is a, a community of people helping themselves and helping each other and, you know, there's always something that you can do, even if it's taking some of our knowledge and, and sharing it in your own life. That's a, an amazing and powerful thing to do. All right, man. I'm going to take your photo All and right. we'll get out of here. Great. Cool, man. That was John O'Nicholas. You can find him on Twitter. Let him know what you thought of the show at J-O-N-O-N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S. And you can also go to reachout.com, as you just heard. Uh, once again, if you're not feeling that great, if any of the stuff that we talked about in that show resonated with you, please, please, please talk to your doctor. Talk to someone close to you. you got to tell someone. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I promise you it's going to be okay. I'm living proof. <laughs> Uh, please subscribe to the show that way the show will arrive in your inbox magically every Monday if you're in Australia every Sunday if you're in the States um, you can jump on the email list uh, which is at um, Facebook I changed my email sign up to Facebook you can see the sign up button just there under my picture of me following my arms on the right there it is uh, and also um, check out other episodes at osherginsburg.com alright uh, have a great week um, that was a good one I like that one it's a heavy one, but you've got to talk about this stuff. You've got, to, you've got to talk about this stuff. You can't just pretend it's not going to be there because it doesn't get better if you don't talk about it. Anyway, I've got to get packing. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I wish you very, very much that you would sleep well and that you would dream of beautiful, beautiful things. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.